This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Due to the graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexuality and violence that some listeners may find offensive. We advise extreme caution to listeners under 13. Marie Antoinette, Queen of France, was not pleased. She sat on her throne, staring down at the man before her, esteemed jeweler Charles Beaumaire. He wept, wailed, and begged for mercy. The man was at the end of his rope. Beaumaire and his business partner, Paul Bassange, had crafted a massive 2,800-carat diamond necklace, conservatively valued around 1.6 million livres, about $19 million today. They'd crafted the piece for Louis XV, but he died before it was completed. Only royalty could afford such an extravagant piece, and now no one wanted to purchase it. Paying interest on the diamonds brought the jewelers to the brink of bankruptcy and brought Beaumaire to his knees, literally. He beseeched the queen. He would throw himself in a river if she didn't buy the necklace. But Marie Antoinette was unmoved. He could throw himself off a bridge or a building or wherever he pleased. It would be regrettable, but it would not be her fault. She did not want the necklace, and she never wanted to see Beaumaire again. With a wave of her hand, the queen banished the jeweler from her sight. Neither realized that the gaudy curtain of jewels would make them both victims of France's greatest royal con. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. 
You can find episodes of Con Artists and all other Parcast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. Last week, we covered Jean Delamotte's rise from rags to riches. We explored how she tricked a nobleman into bankrolling her lifestyle by forging letters from the Queen. This week, we'll dig into the highlight of Jeanne's career, the diamond necklace affair, and the fallout she faced for scamming French royalty. In 1785, 29-year-old Jeanne de la Motte and her husband, Nicolas, pulled off an incredible feat. Through a series of forged letters, the pair duped 51-year-old Cardinal Prince Louis de Rohan into believing he had developed a relationship with Queen Marie Antoinette. They even arranged an in-person meeting between Rohan and the Queen to fully sell the con. Jeanne and Nicolas hired a sex worker to pose as Marie Antoinette under the cover of darkness. Rohan met the imposter in a Versailles garden. She handed him another forged letter and slipped away into the night. Now, they had to test just how well their ploy had worked. In the next forged letter, the Delamotes asked Rohan for 60,000 livres, around $700,000 today. As before, they framed the request as being directly from the Queen, making up an excuse as to why she needed the money, when really, it was to maintain their own luxurious lifestyle. Rohan fell for it. He gladly took out a loan and produced the money. With Rohan firmly in their clutches, the Dullamuts set their sights on a much bigger scam. For the past year, Jeanne had taken great pains to make it seem like she had a close personal relationship to the Queen. After Marie Antoinette turned them down, royal jewelers Charles Beaumaire and Paul Bassange were still desperate to convince the Queen to buy their 2,800-carat diamond necklace. In December of 1784, they went to Jeanne for help. They had heard the rumors that she was a royal confidant. Could she put in a good word for them? Jeanne played coy. Perhaps she could. They begged and even offered her a finder's fee. But she said she couldn't possibly accept. That was small potatoes anyway. She had her eye on a much grander prize. On January 5th, 1785, Jeanne delivered another forged letter from the Queen to Rohan. The note was dramatic, swearing Rohan to absolute secrecy, impressing upon him the importance of what he was about to read. She confided to Rohan that she actually did want to purchase Beaumaire and Bassange's extravagant necklace, but didn't want to negotiate with the jewelers in person. 
To avoid any criticism, the Queen's extravagance and debts were well known, she wanted to keep this purchase under wraps until she had fully paid it off. Therefore, would Rowan purchase the necklace on the Queen's behalf? He considered this request carefully. On the one hand, he was already deeply in debt. Rowan himself was a spendthrift and lived beyond his means. And from the Queen's letter, it seemed he was expected to front the money for the necklace for an indefinite period of time. But, on the other hand, he reasoned that Marie Antoinette would be very grateful if he did her this favour. Rohan desperately wanted a promotion to Prime Minister, and he could only achieve this with the Queen's approval. Gaining her favour through the purchase of the necklace could help him rise through the ranks. In his reply, Rowan agreed to purchase the necklace on the Queen's behalf. He met with the jewellers and worked out a deal. Through Rowan, the Queen would pay four instalments of 400,000 livres every six months. Because they had no other offers and were desperate to sell, the jewellers were forced to accept this payment schedule. Rowan gave them the first instalment and dutifully brought home the necklace for his queen. Jeanne knew that Rohan couldn't directly hand the necklace to Marie Antoinette. Instead, she recruited her erstwhile lover, Reto de Villetta, to dress up as a court musician and retrieve the necklace on the queen's behalf. Rohan was thrilled to have conducted this business. Finally, he was able to do a truly significant favour for his queen. He was sure he'd be back in her good graces in no time and she would fast-track his political career. However, his excitement waned when, the next day at court, he didn't see the queen sporting her new jewels. The necklace, crafted from 647 diamonds and accented with blue, diamond-crusted bows, would have covered the entirety of the queen's chest, with four strands of gems hanging down to her belly button. There's no way Rohan missed it. The queen was simply not wearing it. When he voiced his concerns to Jeanne, she explained it away. The queen wanted to hold off on wearing the extravagant piece until it had been fully paid off for appearance's sake. Rohan was reassured. He had no idea that at that very moment, Jeanne's husband, Nicolas, was ripping the diamonds from their settings and hawking the jewels in London. He quickly accumulated 270,000 livres, around $3.2 million today, and returned to Paris. But the Delamotes spent their newfound wealth almost immediately. By February of 1785, a year after acquiring the necklace, Jeanne and Nicolas managed to spend an astronomical 400,000 livres, around $4.76 million today. It was more money than most of France's leading nobles spent in the same amount of time. For the first time, Jeanne and Nicolas weren't living on credit. They had cold, hard cash. They had so much money that they carelessly left thousands of livres lying around their house. 
Jeanne and Nicola bought extravagant gifts for friends on a whim. The Dillamuts even used diamonds to pay for household goods. They explained their sudden explosion of wealth to friends by claiming that Nicola had won big at the racetracks. Because they were so generous, no one asked too many questions. However, Jeanne couldn't fully relax. She was living a double life. Whenever Rohan came over to visit, Jeanne dressed in her shabbiest clothes and took him to the drabbest part of her house. Rohan was still loaning her small amounts of money. She didn't want him to get suspicious about her sudden good fortune. Rohan himself was growing increasingly more anxious. The queen was still not wearing the necklace. And though he asked to meet with her again in his letters, she rebuffed his requests. Rohan's confidence in Jeanne began to wane. To keep Rohan's questions at bay, Jeanne kept spinning a story. She sent him another letter from the Queen in July of 1785. She wrote that the necklace was so terribly expensive, she wasn't sure if she could really keep it. To help, could Rohan possibly get the price reduced? With this directive, Rohan again approached the jewelers and asked them to cut 200,000 livres from the 1.6 million livres price. Beaumaire and Bassange still had no other offers and several creditors to pay. They were forced to agree. However, Rohan also did something Jean did not anticipate. While meeting with Beaumaire and Bassange, he asked the jewelers to send a thank you note to the queen for her generosity in purchasing the necklace. When the queen received the note, the whole jig could have been up right then and there, but she didn't suspect there was any scheme afoot. She simply thought the jewelers had lost their minds and threw the note into the fire. Not long after securing a discount on the necklace, Rohan received another distressing letter from the Queen. She didn't have the money to reimburse him for the first 400,000 livre payment on the necklace. It would be delayed for two months while she came up with the funds. Rohan thought it might be impertinent to ask what she had done with it or if she ever had it in the first place. In addition, the Queen insisted that she wanted to pay 30,000 livres in interest to the jewellers in lieu of the planned payment. She asked if Rohan could make the payment on her behalf. Once again, Rohan doubled down and coughed up the cash. He was in too deep to do anything else. Rohan had fallen victim to something called the sunk cost effect. Psychologists Hal R. Arks and Catherine Blumer wrote about this phenomenon, where a person is more likely to continue an endeavor if they have already invested time, money, or effort. By this point, Rohan was deeply invested, not only financially, but emotionally. He was firmly ensnared in her trap. Jeanne made sure of it. In late July 1785, Rohan's doubts about the diamond necklace affair were at a fever pitch. 
the Queen had yet to pay a single livre of the 1.6 million owed. Why had she asked him to purchase the necklace for her if she didn't have the funds to repay him? Rowan's doubts ate away at him. Was he really in contact with the Queen? Was he losing his mind? He desperately sought out concrete proof one way or another. Somehow, he finally got his hands on a sample of Marie Antoinette's handwriting. When he compared it against one of the letters he'd received from her, he was most unpleasantly surprised. Even with his fountain of confidence, Rowan could not convince himself that the samples matched. They were just too different. He had been swindled. Rowan's despair turned to panic. If the Queen hadn't requested he buy the necklace, then who had? What were their intentions? Would they pin the whole nefarious scheme on him? Distraught, he asked his friend, Count Alessandro di Cagliostro, for advice. Cagliostro advised Rowan to go to the king immediately, explain what happened, and beg forgiveness. Rowan resisted coming clean because he didn't want to disgrace Jeanne. Incredibly, he still did not realize she had conned him. Grasping for an explanation, he thought someone else must have played them both. This may have been a further extension of the sunk cost effect. He would rather believe that a deceitful stranger had fooled them both than believe that his close friend had betrayed him personally. The combined loss of money and trust may have been too much for him to psychologically handle. Instead, Rowan went to Jean for an explanation. When he showed her the two differing handwriting samples, she dismissed his forgery concern. The Queen learned to write late in life, so her handwriting is inconsistent. Then she turned the attack back on him. She claimed the Queen was just about to publicly announce her high opinion of him. Did Rowan really want to upset her now with his lack of faith and ruin his prospects for a political appointment? Turning the tables like this is a classic gaslighting technique. Dr. Stephanie Sarkis defined gaslighting as a tactic in which a person makes a victim question their reality in order to gain more power. She added that gaslighters use your own words against you, plot against you, lie to your face, all with the goal of consolidating their power. With this trick, Jean pulled Rowan right back into the con. To keep him from losing faith entirely, Jean repaid Rowan the 30,000 livre interest fee, telling him it was from the Queen. In truth, Jean had simply pawned off more of the diamonds from the necklace, but it satisfied his doubts. The ruse continued. But the Delamuts were realizing their scheme could not go on for much longer. Rowan was getting suspicious. They needed to wrap up their con and fast. Jean and Nicola planned to disappear and leave Rowan twisting in the wind with hundreds of diamonds to pay for and even more explaining to do. But the con was unraveling faster than they realized.
On August 2nd, 1785, Beaumaire, the jeweler, visited Marie Antoinette's lady-in-waiting, Madame Campin. She told him that the queen had thrown away the thank-you note he had sent her, dismissing it as the ravings of a madman. Naturally, Beaumaire was confused. If the queen hadn't bought the necklace, who were they dealing with? Would they ever get the rest of the money? Campan was unsettled by the idea that the queen's name might be tied up in some sordid affair. She told Beaumaire to immediately report these events to the Baron du Brotea, the minister of the king's household. But first, Beaumaire wanted to check in with his partner, Bassange, to assess the damage. The very next day, Bassange went to have words with Jean, who he still believed to be a close personal friend of the Queen's. But Jean did what she did best. Spin, spin, spin. She told him that the Queen only denied purchasing the necklace so she couldn't be accused in court of overspending on the country's tight budget. But Bassange had millions of livres on the line. He wouldn't be brushed off as easily as Rohan. He showed Jeanne the Queen's signature on the sale receipt and a copy of her signature from a letter to Madame Compin. They didn't match. Jeanne admitted that the Queen's signature on the sale receipt was forged, but claimed she had nothing to do with it. Instead, she deflected, warning the jeweler to settle the debt with Rohan directly and quickly in case he tried to flee. Ironically, Jeanne and her accomplices were already planning their escape. Coming up, the walls close in on Jeanne de la Motte. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. It was time for Jeanne de la Motte to flee the French royal court in Versailles. In 1785, she had expertly set up Cardinal Prince Louis de Rohan to take the fall in the diamond necklace affair. Jeanne was about to get away with millions of dollars worth of jewels. However, after their distressing meetings with both Jeanne and the Queen's lady-in-waiting, Madame Campin, jewelers Beaumaire and Bassange met up and compared notes. They concluded that either Queen Marie Antoinette had no idea someone had purchased the necklace on her behalf, or they had been pulled into some kind of court intrigue. Either way, they were out the cost of a 2,800-carat diamond necklace with no way to get their money back. The jewelers planned to find out exactly how Rohan was involved. If he truly was trying to pull one over on them, the jewelers decided they would simply beg the queen to take pity on them and save them from bankruptcy. Jeanne 
knew the jewelers were also bound to talk to Rowan after the queen and would realize Jeanne had played them all. She also knew that Rowan was a proud man and would do anything to avoid public embarrassment. So, she figured that once everything came to light, Rowan would pony up and pay for the necklace himself to avoid embarrassment. But she would never get the chance to see if her prediction was right. On August 3rd, 1785, Jeanne and Nicolas de la Motte threw themselves a farewell dinner party, which notably did not include Rohan. Jeanne explained that she and the Queen had recently had a falling out over some false gossip. They were going to lie low in the country for some time while the matter cooled down. After the party, Jeanne had a servant fetch Rohan and she fed him the same story painting herself as a victim. Rohan took her at her word, and they said their goodbyes. Little did he know, he was being thrown to the wolves. The next day, the jeweler Bassange showed up at Rohan's door, asking if he believed Jeanne to be trustworthy. Rohan assured Bassange that he did. Bassange then called on the Delamotes in an attempt to clear up the matter. He caught Nicolas just moments before he left to make his escape to the country. When Bassange asked Nicolas where the necklace was, he replied that the Queen had sold the necklace to someone else. He didn't know whom. This was horrifying news to Bassange. He didn't know why the Queen would go to so much trouble to acquire the necklace just to resell it. But if she had sold it, then she should have had the money on hand to make the payments. Why had she delayed? Bassange had enough of dealing with go-betweens. There was only one person who could answer these questions definitively, Marie Antoinette herself. On August 5th, 1785, Beaumaire went to Versailles to ask for an audience with the Queen. But Marie Antoinette rejected it. She meant it when she banished him from her presence. After sending him packing, the Queen scolded her lady-in-waiting, Madame Compain, for letting Beaumaire in the palace at all. Compain finally voiced her concern that the Queen's name might be involved in something untoward. The Queen begrudgingly summoned Beaumaire back to court for an explanation. On the carriage ride back to Versailles, Beaumaire had plenty of time to rehearse his plea. Once he arrived, he sang like a bird, laying out the relationship between the Queen and Rohan as he saw it. Beaumaire was convinced that Rohan was a confidant of the Queen, that she had his necklace, and was just feigning ignorance to avoid payment. Beginning to suspect that Rohan had plotted against her, the Queen assured Beaumaire that he was wrong. She hated the necklace, and she hated Rohan. She had nothing to do with either. Beaumaire and Marie Antoinette were at an impasse, so the Queen sent him away. A few days later, the two jewelers alerted the authorities. They gave a written statement to Baron du Brotea, minister of the king's household, saying that Rohan had approached them to buy the necklace for the Queen. 
Jeanne de la Motte's name was not mentioned. She was safe for now. The same could not be said for Rohan. On August 15, 1785, Cardinal Prince Louis de Rohan was getting dressed in his scarlet vestments to serve a special mass for the Assumption of the Virgin Mary. One of the king's guards interrupted and escorted him from his chamber to see the king and queen. Rohan had a sinking feeling that this was no ordinary social call. The king and queen presented Rohan with the jeweler's sworn statement to Minister Brotea, detailing their arrangement that the queen would pay for the necklace in four installments of 400,000 livres. They also showed him a letter he'd written confirming the authenticity of the queen's forged signature. The documents painted a very damning picture. Rohan's worst fears were confirmed. Jeanne, his former lover and close friend, had betrayed him and permanently ruined his prospects in the French royal court. Rohan admitted that he had been deceived into purchasing the necklace, thinking he was acting on the Queen's behalf. Then, he named Jeanne de la Motte as the person who fooled him into thinking the Queen had requested that he purchase the necklace. The King quickly dispatched his guard to track her down and arrest her. Adding insult to injury, the Queen told Rohan that she never would have trusted an unknown like Jeanne de la Motte with a matter of this importance. And even if she did, Rohan should have known that with the Queen's low opinion of him, she'd never trust him with something so sensitive. Despite this disastrous development, Rohan remained hopeful that he might escape the matter unscathed. Economist Stephen Pressman wrote that people are psychologically predisposed to be optimistic whenever they are personally involved and have had no bad experiences from the past to counter this innate optimism. This optimism may arise because it is difficult to take other people's perspectives. We focus on our own positive attributes and experiences, inflating the likelihood of positive outcomes without considering that everyone else also thinks highly of their odds. With his cushy upbringing and a noble family, optimistic mindset described Rohan to a T. Unfortunately for Rohan, his innate optimism was about to take a serious hit. Rohan gave his deepest apologies to the monarchs and offered to pay the full price of the necklace to conclude the sordid affair. However, to Rohan's surprise, the king did not accept. He wasn't concerned with the money. He valued his wife's honor above all else. As if on cue, the queen grew visibly upset. To stem the flow of her tears, the king had Rohan arrested on the spot. Things looked very bad for Rohan, but in a stroke of good luck, he managed to sneak a message to his servant before he was carted away, telling them to return to his Paris home and burn his papers post-haste. Already preparing for a trial, the king quickly chose three of his ministers to argue on the queen's behalf. Among them was Baron du Brotea, 
who happened to be a political adversary of Rohan's. Brotea took great pleasure in further disgracing Rohan by ordering his transfer to the infamous military fortress, the Bastille. However, Brotea was less than pleased to hear that when Rohan arrived at Bastille, he was welcomed like an honored guest rather than a disgraced criminal. He received prime accommodations and was even allowed visitors and servants. Brotea turned to Rohan's papers, hoping to find more evidence of crimes, but he was again disappointed. Rohan's servant had disposed of anything potentially incriminating. Meanwhile, 30-year-old Jeanne and her husband Nicolas had settled into their hideaway in the countryside. They didn't even consider fleeing abroad. However, when a priest from Paris spread the news that Rohan had been arrested, Jeanne realized staying in France may have been a grave mistake. She was shocked to hear that Rohan had been taken to the Bastille. She was so sure that he would simply pay for the necklace and everyone would move on with their lives. But now, it seemed the monarchs would not let the matter go. That did not bode well for Jeanne. She wasted no time. Once she learned of Rohan's arrest, she quickly left the dinner table to sort through her papers. She knew her letters posing as the queen could destroy her if they fell into the wrong hands. Jeanne threw her incriminating documents in the fire. On the morning of August 18, 1785, three days after Rohan's arrest, a Paris police inspector banged on Jeanne's door in the countryside. Her maid told the inspector Jeanne was asleep, but that did not stop him. The officer barged into Jeanne's room and woke her up with an arrest warrant. Just as Jeanne had sunk to an all-time low, Cardinal Prince Rohan's optimism was bubbling back up. Even while imprisoned in the Bastille, he cheerfully asserted that his only crime was foolishness. Rohan had burned any evidence that might have exonerated him, but he wasn't worried. He was sure the truth would come out and prove him to be entirely blameless. Jeanne arrived at the Bastille that very same day. The upcoming trial in Paris would be Rohan's word against hers. But Jeanne had been spinning stories since she was a six-year-old beggar on the street. She could talk her way out of anything. Coming up, Jeanne and Rohan stand trial for the grave offenses of fraud and offending royal dignity. Now back to the story. Jeanne de la Motte had been riding high on a scheme to defraud Cardinal Prince Louis de Rohan out of an outrageously expensive 2,800 carat diamond necklace. However, by September of 1785, Jeanne's house of cards had finally collapsed. Now, Jeanne, her accomplice, Reto de Villetta, and Cardinal Rohan were about to stand trial in the highest court in Paris. All sides would testify before the judges, followed by a round of cross-examination and a written legal brief. 
Then, the prosecutor would announce the criminal's potential sentences and the 62 judges would vote on their fates. Rowan took no chances with his defense. He hired a team of the best lawyers available. However, the Crown didn't take chances either when it came to securing Rowan's conviction. The prosecutor, Guillaume-François-Louis-Jolie de Fleury, decided against trying Rowan for forgery. He realized that he could lay that crime squarely at the feet of Jeanne and Villette. Instead, he charged Rowan with a much more grave and nebulous crime of les majestés, impugning the dignity of the king or queen. Due to her salacious reputation, Jeanne did not have many respectable lawyers lining up to defend her. She ended up hiring a lawyer named Maitre Doilo, who was experienced but not very bright. As the stage was set, another actor made his entrance. Reto du Valletta, the forger, arrived at the Bastille on March 29, 1786. His trial strategy was to play things close to his chest while he figured out how much the court already knew and how much he could lie about. This is a fairly common tactic. In a study of Swedish convicts, psychologists Leif A. Stromvall and Rebecca M. Villen found that one out of every four convicts use Villetta's speak-no-evil method. When interviewed by the police, they wait for the officer to give away information about what evidence the police had and then act accordingly. Meanwhile, Jeanne used the same strategy on the stand as she did in her cons. She improvised. No one ever knew what she would say next, including Jeanne herself. One moment, she spoke softly about vague conspiracies against her. The next, she railed against everyone involved in the affair. Then, out of the blue, Jeanne undercut one of her strongest defenses and admitted to setting up Rohan with the Queen in the Versailles Garden. Perhaps she realized that Villetta would confirm the ruse and hoped to get ahead of it. She tried to spin the tale to her advantage by alluding that Rohan had wronged her and that the faux rendezvous with the Queen was part of her plot to get revenge. Jeanne admitted to compromising the Queen's dignity, but argued that Rohan's crime of impudence was much worse than hers. The proceedings continued for another two months. After the conclusion of testimony, Jeanne, Villetta, and Rohan were taken to the Conciergerie, a prison and courthouse, for cross-examination. A large crowd gathered to watch the sparks fly. Jeanne used everything she had in her bag of tricks, misdirection, obfuscation, refutation, and argumentation. Rowan, on the other hand, answered questions calmly and directly. Eventually, public sentiment turned in Rowan's favor. The French people had been primed to believe the worst about Austrian-born Marie Antoinette, it wasn't too far a stretch to think that, in her greed, the Queen had hatched a plot to destroy a French nobleman like Rohan. The de Rohans were connected to the other noble families through marriage, so their influence ran deep. 
the family leveraged their social capital to further sway people to their side. Soon, even relatives of the king were siding with Rohan over the queen. Though the court of public opinion had already ruled for Rohan, it wasn't until May 31, 1786 that the official sentences were presented to the 62 judges for a vote. They were as follows. For Cardinal Prince de Rohan, a formal apology to the Queen, resignation from all his positions, punitive damages, and a ban on entering a palace when the King or Queen were present. For Reto du Velletta, whipping, branding, and confiscation of possessions. For Jeanne de la Motte, whipping, branding, and imprisonment. After 16 hours of debate, the court was ready to vote on these punishments. The devious minister, Baron du Brotea, attempted to negotiate lenient punishments for Villetta and Jeanne in exchange for Rohan's conviction. But the Rohan family was just as underhanded. In the end, 23 judges voted to throw Rohan's case out of court and 26 voted to absolve him completely. Rohan, age 52, was cleared of all charges. He left the courthouse to thunderous applause. The same family wealth and power that made Rohan a perfect mark for a con came to his rescue in the end. The queen was distraught to hear that Rohan had been found innocent and the king was furious. He blamed himself for holding a public trial rather than handling Rohan privately and decisively. Unlike Rohan, Jeanne had no wealthy, well-connected family to fall back on. On June 21, 1786, she was severely punished with a public whipping and branding outside the courthouse. Naturally, Jeanne fought fiercely. It took four men to pin her down while they branded her shoulders with two Vs for volus, French for thief. Her co-conspirator, Villetta, was spared corporal punishment and was merely banished from France in perpetuity. After Jeanne's brutal humiliation, she too was sent off to the Selpatriere Women's Reformatory. At the prison, Jeanne was further humbled by the accommodations. A straw mattress and a small bolted window. Less than a month after she arrived, in November of 1786, Jeanne tried to shimmy out of her tiny prison window, but got stuck halfway. A while after her failed breakout, Jeanne allegedly received an anonymous note promising to help her escape. According to her memoir, she caught a few glimpses of the key to her cell and smuggled a drawing of it to her unknown helper. This mysterious benefactor then made a replica of the key and smuggled it back to her along with a set of men's clothing. Jeanne escaped the prison on June 5, 1787, after nearly a year in the crammed cell. The way she tells it, she snuck out of the prison disguised as a man and accompanied by her maidservant. They made their way to a boat waiting for them on the sand and rowed away. 
Jeanne laid low for several weeks, fearing she would be caught and returned to prison. Eventually, one of her husband's friends escorted her to Dover, where Nicola was waiting. On August 4, 1787, Jeanne saw her husband for the first time in nearly two years. The Delamotte's reunion was not a happy one. Their romantic relationship had fallen by the wayside. Over the years, neither party had remained faithful. Jeanne was bitter that Nicolas had escaped punishment entirely. However, the pair settled into a kind of friendship, living amongst French expatriates in London. In the spring of 1789, Jeanne published Mémoire justificatif de la Comtesse de Valois de la Meute, a book about the affair of the diamond necklace from her point of view. Naturally, she presented herself as the wronged party, an innocent caught up in a dastardly scheme through no fault of her own. Jeanne spun even taller tales on the page. She claimed to be the Queen's closest confidant, even alluding to a sexual relationship. She asserted that the Queen and Rohan were also lovers, and that the Queen had set out to use Rohan as a pawn in a plot to increase Austria's influence over France. Memoirs Justificatifs completely changed the literary game. The book offered readers a direct view into the intrigue and corruption of court for the first time by making the monarchs real characters. For two years after publishing her book, Jeanne lived quietly with Nicolas as an expatriate in London. But in the end, Jeanne found herself with her back against the wall. One of her creditors tired of waiting for payment and sent the police to collect. The amount she owed was £30, or around $4,700 today. Bear in mind, this was a woman who had once spent 400,000 livres in one year, but she didn't have the money. In a bid to escape, Jeanne threw herself out of a second-story window. As skilled a con artist as she was, she couldn't charm the cold, hard cobblestones into cushioning her fall. Comte Jeanne de la Meurthe Saint-Rémy de Valois died on August 23, 1791, at the age of 34. Jeanne's public trial in the case of the diamond necklace affair had much wider repercussions for France. It wedged a chink in the armour of the monarchy, allowing for critical thought where before there was only blind acceptance. In Jeanne's endless grasping for high status, she ended up dragging the royals down in the muck with her. She showed France that royals were people too. Their signatures could be forged, and they could be impersonated by sex workers. This kind of reckoning ultimately opened the floodgates for the French Revolution. The French people were tired of being taxed and trampled upon. On October 6, 1789, nearly four years after the diamond necklace affair, starving working-class women invaded Versailles, dragged the royal family to Paris and imprisoned them. In June of 1791, the king and queen attempted to escape to Austria but were caught. 
on September 21, 1792, the monarchy in France was formally abolished. The former King Louis XVI was found guilty of treason and guillotined on January 21, 1793. That October, Marie Antoinette was brought before the judges. Her crimes in the diamond necklace affair were brought up, among other offences, and two days later, she faced the guillotine as well. In the increasingly destabilized political landscape, Cardinal Prince Rohan was forced to flee from place to place as enemy armies closed in and his titles were stripped. He escaped the wrath of the populace, but on February 17, 1803, Rohan died in exile at the age of 69. From her start as a beggar on the streets of Paris, Jeanne de la Motte made her whole life a performance and pursuit of wealth. She always aspired to elevate herself higher. But Jeanne's haste to climb the ladder of social status had an unintended consequence. She ended up helping to topple an entire world order. Jeanne's bold con captured the attention of French nobles and commoners alike. By involving a monarch in her scheme, she revealed that kings and queens were ultimately human. They could be swindled. They could be impersonated. And when the guillotine blade dropped, their necks fared no better than any commoners. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Con Artists for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Con Artists was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Lieberskind, Maggie Edmire, and Travis Clark. This episode of Con Artists was written by Noni Aquelagu. I'm Alastair Murden. Mm -hmm.